accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints, just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Continuing our run through Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Right now we're up to the episode called The Ship, the second episode of the fifth season. Aired on October 7th, 1996. Teleplay goes to Hans Beamler. Story credit goes to Pam Wigginton and Rick Kazan. Directed by Kim Friedman. In this episode, Cisco fights to keep the wreckage of a crashed Jem'Hadar fighter. It's probably one of the weaker descriptions on Memory Alpha, actually, I think. But we'll get into it. Clay, how are you? I'm good. I feel like this is the episode that launched a thousand fan fictions. In terms of cleavage? Not, in terms of you've got uh, you've got the... <laughs> That whole interaction with with Cisco in, in that that uh, Vorta reminded me. Do you remember the astronaut Jones sketch from SNL? No, I don't think it so. Was, uh, it was it was mostly theme song, but it was Tracy Morgan in this like fifties uh, sci fi pastiche, and he would show up, and there would be these like big old you know busty aliens talking to him about <laughs> their planet, and he'd be like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, what's up?" And then they would stop talking, and he'd say. <laughs> Once you slip out of that green sweatshirt and let me slap that fat ass. And that was just the entire thing. I well, I feel like that scene and also the uh interaction between O'Brien and uh Munez. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's there's a there's a, a big jumping off point for really anything in this episode if you wanted to write some steamy fan fiction we'll about to... crew members trapped inside a hot, <laughs> a hot sweaty ship. crashed starship <laughs> a real tight situation they find themselves in yeah we'll talk about munez we'll talk about the cleavage of the vorta we'll talk about everything we're going to be talking about the ship so we're going to take a break play an audio clip and me and claire are going to come back and we're going to break it down if you have something to say say it sending the gem hadar into the ship was a mistake and i apologize i trust no one was hurt but what choice did i have just like you have to protect the lives of your men i have to protect our property but i do hope we can put that behind us and move on move on to what i'm sure it's obvious by now there's something in the ship we want you allow me and my men to retrieve the item we'll leave you can keep the ship how about this you tell me what it is you want and i'll bring it out to you I'm afraid I can't do that. Don't you trust me? I'd like to, Captain. But I can't. Not under these circumstances. There's simply... too much at stake for us. We've got a lot at stake, too. I won't risk the lives of my crew. <laughs> it seems we're approaching an impasse. We've already arrived. All right, so, Clay, this is, as someone who's seen the series, or most of the series, this is a very interesting I've episode. I've seen everything. You, this is a very interesting episode to me. Uh, this one, this is one of those episodes that I, there's two kinds of criti criticism you could come away from it. There are a lot of things that I think you could either, depending on how you're feeling about the word of the day, you could either say you could either nitpick or find plot holes in what's going on here. Mm -hmm. However... In my opinion, this is an extremely strong episode that is very, this is almost a foreshadow of 
the way that the war goes. And it's not a spoiler to you. You know the Dominion War eventually happens. It will happen a little bit. But the show eventually becomes very, very, very interested in war themes and sort of the the um, the price you pay with war and the sort of morality of war and whether or not there's mm-hmm. any sort of righteous action that can come from war. And they're not there yet. Although this one feels like a much later episode of the show in a very interesting way to me. Uh, but what did you think about the ship? I thought this episode was great. I think this is probably one of my favorite ones I've seen in a long time. Um, I, I'm curious. I wasn't really... I, I, I'd be curious what, what, what you think the plot hole things are. And I'm not saying that there aren't any. I feel like there's one kind of big one. I, and again, I, I, I wouldn't call it a plot hole. I would just say it's a uh, questionable choice. Uh, sure. Um, I would say that's the, fair. Yeah. Yeah. The one that I'm thinking of is that I can't, I was trying to figure out why this is an instance I feel like where you've got the Jem'Hadar involved in this thing and the Jem'Hadar, these, you know, crazy, you know, killers and all that kind of stuff. And you, you establish at a certain point that they can transport inside the ship why don't they all just transport inside the ship and kill everybody? They, well, they, bring, they they do talk about that, that at the end. I was thinking the other way. Why don't they beam the founder out? Or that too. Yeah. Yeah. Either, either one. Yeah. The, they, I think. Uh, and also, why doesn't the founder show up on the sensors? I mean, do, do yeah. they yeah. do they not show up if they're in like, you know, taking the form of a suitcase or something? Is I think that that's that works? I think that is because they've said in previous oh, that okay. Odo becomes the thing that he says he is so that like the, yeah, his DNA shows up as that. But I, I they do mention why the Jem'Hadar don't go in. They don't storm it because they don't want to risk killing the founder is the reason that they don't all go in with weapons. Uh, that's why the one Jem'Hadar goes in only has a knife on him. Yeah, I I feel like I I mean I guess for the 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 point of the sake of the episode that's easy to hand wave that but I feel like these you know you send in five Jem'Hadar with knives and those those tired yeah. uh, starving <laughs> Star- Starfleet guys are going to be <laughs> taken out pretty quickly and I know there is also you know the point of the episode is that the Vorta is offering she is making a legitimate offer to let them out of there and so she doesn't want to have to kill everybody. And I'm not saying, but again, I'm not saying they would have had to kill everybody. I don't know. I just feel like there's, if you wanted to harp on this episode about like a, why didn't they? Yes. Which there's a lot of that. Yeah. I don't love those kinds of arguments because I feel like, well, you know, as long as it's, as long as it's not a hand of God type, why didn't they? Uh, That's just eliminating logic altogether. Um I feel like you can make the case where it's just like, well, that's the decision that they made in the in the moment. Yeah, I I think there's two. I, the I sort of said that as a preface to a lot of the criticism of people who don't think this episode is a very outstanding episode <clears throat> tend to sort of harp on those reasons as like there's problems with the script. I yeah. I would say that they're not really plot holes. A lot of them are stuff that you kind of have to fill in the blanks about what happened. Like why the founder dies is one of those things, and my, like in. You could say it's a problem because they never outright say what happened to the founder. However, in my head, I just assume that it also got injured in the accident that killed all the yeah. Jem'Hadar and yeah, was dying the entire that. time. Yeah, that's fine. I don't think you need to explain that at all. Right. And so they, they never really break down what's going on. And there's no line. I would have fixed the whole transport thing by just saying whatever this mountain, this the ship is stuck in is stopping the transporter from working. Like they can't yeah. beam people in or out of it. And that would have made sense. And then... It's just things like that. Like I, I, they're probably not plot holes, but they are 
things that are either skipped over or the script is deciding not to be important. And I think that in my opinion, this episode is so good that it doesn't matter about those things. Like it's a, it's not really about that. I think everything else that's going into it is so strong and so good and so interesting for Star Trek. Like, I don't think there's ever been a Star Trek episode kind of like this, like the, the, the senior officers get in a fist fight with each other, basically, right, about how right. things are going. Like, there is something very unique about this, and I think it's a really strong thing. But uh, if you wanted to continue what you were talking about, because you kind of jumped off into the nitpicky aspect of trying to shoot that down for me. But what would you think about it? Oh, no. I mean, just to continue on that a little bit, I think I think with certain stories, you you do have there's a hierarchy as to what's important, you know, and I think sometimes I don't. I don't think this is a. This isn't a plot episode. You know, this is a. This isn't a, a whodunit or a, a mystery where, when you look back and you and they're they're if it's not one where they're trying to present a story where they're being clever, but they're cheating in the way they're being clever. That's when that stuff really tends to matter and really can and take down an episode. This is a character episode. This is an emotional episode. And I'm not saying that you have to throw all logic out the door, but I think the stuff that they hand wave is completely you know, reasonable. Yeah. And um, and I don't think it's really distracting. And if you are distracted by that, then this is not your kind of episode, I guess. Yeah, I think so. The, the other thing that I'm comes not talking in, about you specifically, I'm just meaning in general, yeah, the, the Royal you or whatever. The, I know you have, I know you have no emotions. But. <laughs> the thing, uh, the thing about, the thing that's also funny is that on Memory Alpha, they talk a lot about the production team was actually kind of disappointed with how this episode turned out. And I, really, I'm, I understand what their criticism is, and I'll kind of feed into it as we go through the thing. But at the same time, I feel that they, the things that they're upset by are sort of standard Star Trek failings. So to me, it's not like they really tried to reinvent the wheel here and kind of failed at it. It's basically just the, the weaknesses that pop up for them. They sort of say there's no good connection between O'Brien and Muniz. Is, that is a Star Trek problem in general. So it's it's yeah. not like their show is ever going to get away with the fact that they have to kill off these sort of no-name characters that we don't know. Like, they can't kill off the main cast, so they're going to be stuck with these sort of red shirts in this case. Or this guy's a yellow shirt, but he's a red shirt, essentially. And there's a weakness of that kind of... There's a weakness in terms of having to deal with, deal with that stuff as a viewer. However, and you could even say that maybe the O'Brien stuff isn't written all that well, but I think eventually what it turns into earns this time that you spend with it. Yeah. I think that... That that stuff is funny because it's like, as soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, oh, that guy's fucking dead. <laughs> <laughs> the opening scene where they're talking yeah. about like Ireland. Yeah. 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 It's like, you know, everything with him is like a, a large scale version of the cliche in a war movie where you have the one guy who pulls out the picture of his wife and talks about how he can't wait to see his best yep. girl again. And yep. then, you know, obviously he's the first guy to get it. As and, he peeks you know, up usually, out of the foxhole, yeah, the bullet just hits him smack in the forehead or something. Yeah. yeah, or the other option is like, you know, they have the long drawn out thing where he's dying and he's like, this is it, this is it, chief, which is exactly more or less what they do here. But yeah. I think yeah. they do it to a pretty good end here where I, I they do that stuff because they have to build this relationship of these two kids. I mean, whether or not... Munez has feelings for O'Brien other than just chief <laughs> friendship, and yeah. subordinate or whatever. Or friendship is is debatable, uh, given the way he's playing it. And I'm not making any assumptions, but he seemed he seemed like he was he was uh, he was undressing him with his eyes in a couple. He, of he those calls scenes, it, but, he calls him Poppy, I think. Yeah, I, which I oh, think no, he calls him Hefe. He calls him Hefe. Does he call him? 
<laughs> I thought he called him Poppy, which which sounds yeah, very. It's very. <laughs> and, you know, and honestly, if the if the actor made that choice, good for him. I mean, yeah. <laughs> why not throw some subtext into into uh, an otherwise cliche situation? Um, yeah, 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 hundred percent. It's but, uh, I agree. I agree. I'll throw it back to you, but it's I I agree. I think that that. I think that that stuff is not particularly written super well. The the, the thing is, we've seen Munez before. He's in, been in a couple episodes, and they've and always I ha- definitely remember him. With he's only had small roles where it's like they've. What they were trying to do is they were trying to show that the the tech guys, like the engineering staff, kind of have a um, friendly banter with each other, and they have had that in previous episodes. Here, yeah. it feels a little bit odd because you haven't been really familiar with this guy, and it comes across as a little bit too romantically interested in each other. And like, not, not that that, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's like, that's not the point that they're trying to get across. They're trying right, to right. relate to this friends being stuck in a war thing. And it comes across as kind of a, a weirder relationship than that. It's not really nailing the focus of two buddies who one of them is dying and the other one has to deal with it. It comes across as uh, the production staff. Ira Bear said it comes across instead, like O'Brien is dealing with a subordinate. And that's not what they wanted to come across, but that's what it is. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's terrible. I think it accomplishes it, but it's not certainly not the sterling uh, high point of the episode. It does all kind of feel like it's two guys who just came out of the locker room, just like snapping towels at each other's naked yeah. asses. Yes, except yeah, one very... of them has a one of them has a bleeding mortal wound. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, which is again, which is fine. But it's like, yeah, I can I can see why they might be a little disappointed with the way that stuff came off, or the or, but I, you know, I think it's I think it works. I think it's there. I I think uh, it falls into the margin for error of uh, '90s TV hamminess that is acceptable. Like I don't find it overly distracting because I think you do. There is a benefit of hindsight where you can kind of be like, okay, yeah, maybe this doesn't totally work, but it's. It's it's like you were saying it's a it's a trapping of of the series that they've never really been able to get away from. Right, and I, I don't think the best of case scenario you're not going to be able to avoid that problem. Like, yeah, it, it's just it's just a it's just a part of the series. You just have to get over that and deal with it, and maybe hope for the best in terms of the writing. Maybe that doesn't deliver in that case there, but I think it's still it's not something that really matters. So, what did you really like about the episode? If you said it was one of your favorites so far, um. I loved the uh, the opening sequence of them going through the ship, at the the busted up ship, upside down ship, and the the nice horror kind of lighting and camera work they were doing, and the reveals of the dead bodies and stuff. It was kind of like Predator. Um, I thought overall, I thought it was uh, it was. Uh, I, it had it had the feeling. It reminded me of episodes like Balance of Terror from TOS, where they really get into the um, isolation and uh, claustrophobia of being stuck in a place like that, and what it can do to everybody else's nerves and everything. Yeah, um, I loved Worf. This might be my favorite Worf episode so far. Uh, you know, he didn't have a ton to do, but they they dropped him in at just the right points and, and jacked up the Klingon meter. <laughs> uh, to make him, you know, as far away from the uh, as far away from the sympathetic or empathetic O'Brien as you could put him without breaking his character. Yeah. Um, and I thought the end, the end thing too, the end uh, confrontation when, which when the Vorta comes back and she's like, "Yeah, everybody kill themselves." 
Francisco's like, what? <laughs> She's like, yeah, they, they killed themselves because the founder's dead. And uh, yeah, I failed and you failed and everybody failed. And we all kind of have to deal with the fact that we all failed because yeah, we didn't yeah. trust each other. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real, um, uh, you know, I uh, as I'm getting older, um, I find uh, war movies to be the most um, viscerally terrifying movies I can, I can watch like mm-hmm. I, I, going back and like, going back and revisiting like band of brothers is a great show. It's unbelievable show, but like I've been able to really put myself in the situation that those guys are in, not because I've ever been it because it's like, it's, it's kind of like the last thing I would ever want to do. Right. Uh, and it becomes very real and very visceral when you think about exactly what happens in these situations. And, and, and so something like this where they get to the end and they're really kind of giving you uh, a realistic understanding or depiction of what happens in a wartime situation like this where a bunch of people just got needlessly killed because two people wouldn't trust each other, wouldn't talk to each other. That stuff hits pretty hard for me anyway these days. Um, And I think as far as Star Trek goes, that's, you know... this is one of the more, I would say, dark episodes they've ever done, and I and it's it's not like, um, what's the word? It's not existentially dark, like you know, the idea of how do you deal with the memories of being a ki- killer cyborg now that you're not a killer cyborg anymore. It's like a, it's a it's a more personal like, uh, dark in the sense of humanity kind of kind of way. Yeah, uh, which is very against the grain for what Star Trek usually is. The thing, the thing about this episode is that, uh, as I mentioned at the top, they'll start moving into uh, this war scenario, and a large part of season five, which is the season that we're in, is sort of portraying that conflict as inevitable. Um, a yeah. lot of it is that this is just kind of two different groups who are never going to see eye to eye, and that they they have to sort of come to a head at this point. And I think what what they what they do with that shift is that this isn't an episode that's kind of like even DS9 did big war stuff like where the warrior was a big fight scene uh episode. Mm-hmm. We've seen other Star Trek episodes that have been big sort of fight scenes and when the big action battle scenes happen it's all about the space shooting and the people running through corridors shooting each other and stuff like that and then you know at the end there's never any reconcile about like the they I don't think we've ever Maybe we've seen a couple, but we don't. We certainly don't get a lot of the captains having to come to terms with the decisions that they've made at the end yeah. of the day. And what I think well, when here, was the last time we saw anybody bleed to death from a phaser blast? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that, that's that's true. And the 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 thing about it is that DS Nine. This is kind of a shift, and they're moving away from that sort of action spectacle into instead being interested in what's happening to their characters who are being impacted by these stories. Mm -hmm. And it's a big, big change for the series and for the franchise in general. And it's a looking down this sort of like very dark, uh, you're right, it's it's a super dark episode, the way that everything wraps up. Both sides have lost. And I think it does a... Not only does it sort of show the human side of this, I think this is actually probably one of the best episodes at portraying the Dominion and how they interact with each other. Mm. I love the shot of when the founder dies and it screams. They do that pan shot outside where the Jemadar and the Vorta are sort of like listening to it, sort of with yeah, a, yeah. like a sad look on their face. Um, it's a very, it's a very 
interesting equal thing here where the Dominion are clearly wrong about how they sort of run their lives, but this gives them, it, it sort of humanizes them in a way that the previous episodes never managed to do. Yeah, um, it does. The uh, uh, the darkness of this episode, too, it doesn't even really, you know, usually when they do episodes like this, there's some sort of like uh, um, hopeful upswing at the end. And even in this one, the hopeful upswing is is more of like a like a blip. It's not it's not the most hopeful upswing. It's it's for, it's uh, the first scene is Cisco having trouble writing the report because all they can think about are the, the five people who died that didn't need to die. And then Dax is like, well, I mean, if it's any consolation, they were really happy to do it. Yeah. It's like, okay, and, thanks, and we, I guess. <laughs> we got a lot of, we got a lot, a lot of technology out of it. We might've saved, well, they went, well, the argument is we might've saved 5,000 lives by having five people die, which is a tough thing to prove, but it's, right. I think it's just Dax trying to cheer up uh, Cisco at, on a certain level. Yeah, and even the following one with O'Brien and, and Worf, it's the the upswing is like, yeah, he's dead, and it's sad that he's dead. I'm going to be sad with you. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's. I mean, it's a nice character beat. I was wondering how they were going to resolve that whole thing because the first thing I thought they were going to do is like, because they do uh, when he dies in the ship, uh, they do like a, a cut to Worf, uh, and like a it's it's like a cut and a little bit of a pan. So it's like Worf and Dax, and they kind of cut to them, and then sort of kind of focus in on Worf. Yeah, Dax and tries I, to step forward, and Cisco holds her back, and the camera moves over to Worf. Yeah, yeah. I thought he was going to do the Klingon death yell thing because mm-hmm. I thought cause I I knew that there was going to be some sort of Klingon thing that was going to be the resolution to their their conflict. And I'm yep. I actually I like this one better than if they had done the Klingon yell thing. I, I thought it was nice. Well, here's something interesting. Uh, it's sort of what they do here sort of contradicts previous Klingon canon, where previously they said that once a war- Klingon warrior is dead, his body's just a useless, useless shell and they don't care yeah. about it. Um, is Worf lying here? Or is this a, Ooh, is, yeah. is he making this up to sort of uh, accommodate O'Brien on some level? I think I think he could be. I mean, I think it goes either way. I think yeah, that's a decision yeah. that you can make for yourself, I think. Yeah, I think if, I, I if mean, you want to be if you want to be someone who cares more about uh continuity holes than emotional scenes, then yeah, maybe they got it wrong and they're idiots because they got it wrong and they don't watch the show that they write. Uh, I, I, but if you care more about the way that these things work, then yeah, maybe he's just lying to him to be nice. Yeah, I, I, I think I definitely prefer the this is actually a Klingon uh, tradition that we're going to do together and you're going to embrace. They I enjoy the fact that they never outright apologize to each other. It's just kind of yeah. left simmering there. Uh, TNG, I think, would have had them apologize like the scene after they had a fight with each other and then it would have been going on if they even had a fight like that. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about the... I mean, talk a little bit about the the stress of what they undergo here, because the production team thought that they actually didn't sell the stress of the situation well enough. I think they're wrong about this. I think that mm-hmm. they, I think that everything that what you were saying, being the claustrophobic nature of the upside down ship that they're in, like no one can sort of get their grounds going, that there's the bombings going on outside. I think all the scenes build on each other really effectively. You can see them starting to get more and more annoyed with each other as mm-hmm. time is going on. Dax's sense of humor is actually brought into question, like how annoying someone like Dax could be if you were stuck with them for a while. It's yeah, a very sarcastic like sense of humor. Um, and they have the that great scene, scene where, where everything breaks down and then Cisco yells at Dax for saying no one's laughing yeah. at you and then yells at everybody to tell them what to get back to doing their job. I was just going to say, that scene where, where Cisco finally breaks and starts, you know... Uh, be professionals, maxing, damn it. <laughs> maxing out the captain level there, I thought was really... I thought that was great, yeah. 
as far as selling it, I, yeah, I feel like they sell it pretty well. Um, the one thing I might've changed is I might've visually amped up how sweaty and gross they look, Mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't even think about, I mean, obviously they're in the desert, but I didn't even think about how hot it was in there until he said it. Yes. Um, and they don't do the usual thing they do in these shows where like everybody starts rolling their sleeves up or like unbuttoning their shirts and shit. Uh, And they weren't using a lot of like, you know, not a lot of water drinking or anything going on or the glycerin sweat or stuff like that to make them look really sweaty. Um, and maybe I, maybe the, uh, I know the scene where he meets the Vorta for the first time and she offers him food and drink. I know the implication there is supposed to be that they haven't eaten or drank anything in a long time, but I think that if, I think that's the moment that, that doesn't land well enough. Cause I know there's the also thing where he's worried about it being poisoned or whatever, but I felt like the point of that was supposed to be like, you're thirsty and hungry. Do you, don't you want to eat and drink? Yes. And I don't know if that totally landed because it happens pretty early on in the in the situation. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you because I didn't even really think about it that way. I think I see it as the uh, it's just the starts of hinting of neither trust the other one. Cisco won't yeah. even have food. Works with that them, way too, yeah. I, I 100% agree that it, it should have been used as a uh, temptation type thing. Because what do you think about this Vorta, actually? Um, Like? Would I go out with her? Sexually, yes. <laughs> I, I think that there's other... I was reading reviews. Some people have criticism of this Vorta performance. I really like it. I think it's in line with Weyoun. Weyoun is recalibrated yeah. what the Vorta do. And in my opinion, what she's doing is she is so desperate to get this founder back, she is coming across as kind of inconsistent in how she negotiates with Cisco. She's trying everything to get the founder back. And... yeah. If it comes across as inconsistent in how she's acting, I think it's just because she's not really settled into one mode of trying to convince him. She's trying uh, seduction with a cleavage. She's trying to like mm-hmm. uh, she's telling him how attractive he is and how like impressive his uh, Starfleet career is, how much she knows, trying to all these different things. And I think it's it's really just built around the fact that it's hiding their desperation to get the changeling off the ship. And I think it's really well done. Yeah, yeah. The fact that she's trying, it really all goes to to uh, further the point at the end where she's trying all of the different deceitful tactics she has in in lieu of actually just being straight with him. And uh, if she had just been straight with him, I mean, although I mean, who knows? I, I mean, if as as Cisco says, like, how am I supposed to trust anything you said when the very first thing you told me was a lie? Well, if she had told him the truth right from the get-go, would he have been any more inclined to believe her? I don't know. No, I don't um, know. You know, it would have been a nice touch, like a, just like a visual touch, if at the end when she shows up on the ship, she had her zipper all the way up on her shirt. Because <laughs> I assume, I assume, I assume that was part of the ruse. Yes. As you were saying. Um, I would think so. But yeah, I, it's, she's wearing a, a wearing a turtleneck, a tight, yeah. just a very loose fitting turtleneck. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it it really is kind of cool the way that she kind of runs through all the tricks that she knows. I mean, it's it's weird that she starts with the uh, like weird sort of uh, oh, I'm just a ditzy new person who doesn't really do this. You know, it's that, right. That's such a strange thing to start with. Um, that you're coming in. It's I I don't know if that would have been the best tactic to start with, especially since you've already established uh, these guys showing up and like 
fucking your ship up a little bit and like killed a bunch of people to just to show up and be like, Hey, hi, I'm new here. I've never done this before. Uh, I feel like you do that before you start killing people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's fair. But, uh, yeah, she's, she's running through all of the, uh, every, everything she knows except telling the truth. And it's a, uh, they have the great sort of, uh, second conversation where she's, she's getting more and more desperate. So she says, I won't have a guard or a weapon, but you can do whatever you want. I just need to talk mm-hmm. to you again. Uh, that's when she reveals that there's something on board that they want. And, you know, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, the, the, I just think they, they end that really well with it looks like we're at an impasse. It looks like we're approaching an impasse and Cisco says we're already there, which I think is that that is a very meta line for the series at this point, because I, I don't want to say too much about it. But I do think that the the way that this season goes with its story, um, this is a very important dominion episode for everything yeah. that goes goes on for and i think they did a really good job with it uh but you were going to say something but i also wanted to just check in quick and then you can go to your thought yep. when did you realize it was a changeling did you pick uh, on that, that I, before it no. happened no no okay. I, I didn't pick up on it um i probably should have if i was thinking about the things that were that important to the gem hadar but i just assumed it was just you know some sort of MacGuffin thing data rod or I, something yeah yeah some some shit like you, that you know what's funny for uh, me or well for I, me or honestly knew- Sorry, I was just gonna. I, I, or honestly, uh, um, I wouldn't have been surprised if it had been like nothing, you know? Yeah, the old sure. uh, Maltese Falcon switcheroo. For me, it was funny because I, I knew there was a changeling on board, although I didn't remember the uh, the bigger strokes of it. And I actually thought that the first time Worf yells at O'Brien, I thought it was slightly out of character, and I was wondering if the changeling had started impersonating people at that point to start to stir up dissension. But this is a better way to go. I don't think we need another changeling turns into people and sort of plays up things. I think the naturalness of the the situation they find themselves in is a better fit for the story. Yeah, I think that's a very, that's a different story. You know, that's, that's, I think doing that would have been, I would think it would have undercut what they were doing here because... Then you can put all the blame for the the them acting crazy onto the changeling instead of it just being the fact that they were all acting crazy because of right. the situation. Yep, undercuts um, that material. Yeah, but yeah, I was gonna say, you know, the thing that's interesting or that I question though is what is at, at the end of the episode after all said and done, you know. Cisco is all depressed about you know the loss of life, understandably over the fact that they didn't trust each other. What are his options in this situation? Like what, let's say, let's say the Vorta showed up, uh, in a very, you know, business appropriate attire. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and was like, Hey, there's a changeling on board your ship. We want the changeling back. Then we'll let you go. Is he supposed to say yes to that? Like, how is he supposed to, even if they came up and told him the truth, what reason does he have to trust anything that she says? Nothing. So I, is, is, so is his frustration, is it a personal frustration or is it a larger frustration with just like the way the world works? Because I don't know if he really has, if it, I mean, I understand the personal frustration because it's he's the captain and people died under his command for this thing that seemingly, you know, who knows what they're going to get from it. But like, as far as the way he handled it, I don't think he did anything wrong. I think it's a, I think it's a larger, he's annoyed with the world kind of situation. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I think what the, the ending is really kind of neat here. I guess we should probably just stick on it for about 10 minutes before we wrap it up. But the, 
The ending from the the scene where they Vorta and Cisco are talking to each other and it's revealed that if they only they had sort of been honest with each other, all of this sort of unnecessary death could have been avoided. Yeah. Uh, the founder would have been returned, the crew members would not have died and all that stuff. It then moves into it then moves into another thing that I've brought up before, but there's a growing disillusionment with Starfleet. Yeah. Because yeah. What happens is after that's done, Dex comes in and says, "What's what did Starfleet have to say?" And he says, "They're uh, they said good job or very good job." And he says, "We're all going to get medals," uh, very sarcastically. And Dex says, "Good, I'll just add it to my pile." Um, that's a in the, in moving the series from that sort of overarching actiony sci-fi thing where Starfleet is kind of like all-encompassing and turning it into a more of a personal DS9 story. The administration and the bureaucracy of Starfleet is seen as sort of the, the basically the politicians who send people to to war and don't care yeah, about it yeah. like they they become that kind of role and you could say the dominion are sort of the same way that the the jemhadar have been shown to be uh, have the same sort of respect level from the vorta and the founders in that way like they're just sort of expendable death pieces death soldiers and i think the cisco is just upset with the whole turn of events is like that because the you know uh, I think I've read one of the patron thoughts that, that think I'm going to harp on the fact that why is the Federation yet again in the Gamma Quadrant? Mm-hmm. I've been I've been thinking about this, and I think it ties into this point, and then I'll kick it back to you about the uh, Cisco being upset with the nature of the world. I think you have to look at it more thematically than anything. I think if you yeah. look at it on a on a, a like why are they doing this like factual narrative level, it doesn't really make a lot of sense why they keep right. going into the Gamma Quadrant. But right. if you look at it as just the Federation is all about expansion and sort of learning and going out there and meeting people. And the Dominion are xenophobic isolationists who want their territory and they don't want anyone else to be interfering with them. They're very fearful mm-hmm. of outsiders. It's really just a thematic clash of those cultures. And because they're so different, that's also a reason that Cisco is upset with the whole state of things at the end, because he's kind of recognizing like this is a very futile thing that's happening here. Like we can't come to terms uh, or an agreement with each other. Right. And it it kind of really shows that Cisco, at his core, is still a quote unquote Star Trek character, and I mean that in the best way possible, doesn't it? Because it's his frustration is born out of the fact that he his pedigree is of Star Trek. He wants to be one of those um, uh, idealistic characters who who are about uh, boldly going where no one has gone before. Um, and meeting new races and working together. And, and he's he's born of this utopic idea. And so his frustration that these things aren't going that way, I feel like is very, is a great way to keep him, to keep his character uh, firmly in Star Trek, the concept, while the surrounding conceptual world is starting to go in a different direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, they, they, well, they write that, I think, as... Um... That's his sort of academy story. He has a professor who gives you the the very Star Trek-y answer of like captains just have to stay emotionally distant. Red shirts are going to yeah. die. Just be better than that. And Cisco says, well, it's one thing to say that. And it's one thing for the show and the previous series to have said that and not really cared about it. But this is a different show. And all I can think about are that these people died for no particular reason. And it's weird. And we should maybe think about that and meditate on it for a little bit. Yeah, and maybe sometimes you meditate on that when you kill off people like, you know, Tasha Yar, which is probably a mud monster. <laughs> Most tragic character of all Although time. Munez, Munez doesn't get 
a sappy hologram speech at the end though so <laughs> you know i was thinking does does that does the banter that they have munez and o'brien have does that ever occur in like real life that like work specific banter when, that they always write into genre stuff where it's like specifically sci-fi just to to sound like it's a different way of like razzing each other or whatever where he's like i'm 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 leaking more than a burst plasma coil or some <laughs> shit like that. Are there are there people who work for like HVAC companies who every time they cut their hand they're like ah oh, man I'm bleeding more than a cut oil line on a something something like does that I I don't know if the, real people actually talk like that. No, I mean whenever I'm in like lines at a, a line of like a Dunkin' Donuts and you hear like some some real like some real like uh, like electricians or something come in they're generally. It's generally a little bit different. It's probably not a conversation that's appropriate for Star Trek. Is the problem yeah. like it's a little bit? It's a little bit more inappropriate and sort of um, uh, uncouth, I guess would be the word. But I don't. I don't think anyone really. No one really jokes about their job in that kind of way. Like, yeah, yeah you've um, this spreadsheet is coming undone faster than whatever you can come up with or something like that. But yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's it's a way of. I guess it's a writer's shortcut for just sort of showing that these people like each other. Is that they're very jocular with each other like that? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's necessary. And it comes across as um, uh, like I don't know. It just comes across as I don't know what the relationship. I I, I think it just. I think a lot of it might be born of. Well, I don't know if you agree with this, that like O'Brien seems difficult to nail down as a personality on a lot of ways. Like he, yeah. he goes and he tends to go in a lot of directions. And I know that he's supposed to be seen as like the um, the leader of the common man. The, the, the moment I think about it was the remember the episode to the death, which is where Wayun was in before they they all agree to go storm the uh, the planets and the the Jem'Hadar are like we live for victory and without victory we are nothing and O'Brien says I'm O'Brien and I want to live forever so don't fucking let me die out there uh, and all the guys cheer that's kind of an O'Brien moment that I yes. suppose they're trying to latch onto here as well yeah. you know I'm glad you brought that up because it just reminded me of something I was uh, I was in the car with my girlfriend talking about that episode and talking specifically about that scene and she kind of brought up a good point and she doesn't watch Star Trek but. Apparently she she knew enough from my descriptions to point this out. <laughs> when the Jem Hadar guy gives that speech where he says victory is life, shouldn't shouldn't they not be concerned with whether or not they live the Jem Hadar? They uh, like, wh- why is why is life why is surviving the battle why is that a victory for them? Are they not more concerned about winning and about the actual like their lives? Yes. They they understand that they are expendable. I, I think so. I think that's part of they. Well, they take a pride in that not many of them live past five or whatever that guy says. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I think of that like the the way to the way that we've mentioned is countering it is that the Jem'Hadar yes are about anything less than a victory is a failure for the Jem'Hadar mm-hmm. and where the Klingons are a little bit different where they the 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 thing of fighting is good enough for them like the fight is the reason to live as opposed to yeah. the Jem'Hadar which want victory yeah. to survive. Yeah. Um, right. is there any? Do, 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 do. Uh, no, I think we talked about Starfleet's indifference at the end. I like the fact that they put Munez in a, uh, the torpedo casing, just like yep. uh, Wrath, of, Wrath of Khan and stuff yep. like that. That's a very good callback. Yeah, and um, it is a very good Worf episode. You see those guys actually getting to a little bit of racial insults being thrown back and forth. They get into a little bit of a fight. O'Brien continues his thing of being a terrible fighter for an ex-soldier. He's like god-awful at fighting other people. Well, I did, I did like... <laughs> well, he's also fighting... <laughs> 
He's also fighting Michael Dorn as Worf, who is not exactly <laughs> the best fighter. So I was happy that, uh, at least in that one scene, they dialed down O'Brien's fighting ability to the point where Worf could easily take him out. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought I mean, that was good. I thought that was great. O'Brien always gets, there was that other uh, broken link, I think, when they were on the, they're on the Defiance and the Jem'Hadar board, and the Jem'Hadar gives O'Brien a titty twister to end all titty twisters. <laughs> like, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Brings him down to his knees. O'Brien, O'Brien always gets stuff like that uh, thrown at him, unfortunately. I mean, to be fair, I mean, if you don't see that coming, I don't care what situation <laughs> you're in. You could be you could be driving a spaceship. If somebody comes up and gives you a titty twister, you're going to be like, ah, <laughs> what was that? That, that was the, Honestly, who throws a shoe? You fight yeah. like a woman. <laughs> um, anything else? To, I, I feel like I kind of hit everything that I wanted to talk about on this one. Is there anything else for you before final thoughts? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I think we pretty much covered it. Yeah, I think it's uh, pretty good. If You probably recognize this uh, location because every time they go outside uh, to a desert place, they shoot in this like this little area where it's not the last time we've seen it. It's not the first time we've seen it. We're going to be back here I didn't recognize times. it specifically, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, the the episode where you always laughed about how O'Brien and Kira just walk up to that Cardassian prison on the desert oh, planet. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's this area as well. Is so. this also the same mountain where they go to find uh, Garrett's... Chikar, no, right? Dukar, oh. du- the daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the same location. It's the yeah. one where Shakar, when he's running up into the mountain and they find Will, uh, Bill Rawls from The Wire, finds him. That's the uh, same yeah. area. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay, well, we'll take a break. We'll play an audio clip. Me and Clay are going to come back, read some patron thoughts, and give our final thoughts about the ship. What did Starfleet have to say about our prize? They're pleased. That's all, just pleased. Very pleased. They're giving us all medals. I'll add it to my collection. Starfleet commander's waiting for my official report. But every time I try to get started, I find myself staring at the casualty list and reading the same five names over and over again. Talor, Rooney, Bertram, Hoya, Munez. It may sound cruel, but we both know that ship out there was worth it. Those five deaths may save 5,000 lives, or maybe even five million. And if I had to make the same trade all over again, I would. But five people are dead. Okay, back with patron thoughts about the ship. If, uh, as always, if you support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file, a couple dollars a month, you get extra stuff, including the ability to leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes. We read them on the podcast. Zim Nuclear Wessel says the ship, one misstep in the episode is to have Dax be one of the people taking care of Munez. As science officer, she should really be working with O'Brien. They should have put Worf in charge of him, which I think would have added a lot more potential for interesting drama. One good step, Kalana. Uh, that's the Vorta. So eager to throw herself under the bus if it serves her plan. I'd call her one of my favorite Vortas, except that they're all pretty much my favorites. Um, I don't know if, maybe you should, can comment on that at this point, Clay. I, I, I don't know if you remember, I've mentioned before, I love the Vorta species. I think they're mm-hmm. really interesting, particularly at post-Wayun um, and Wayun Returns. But I think that they are, I don't know, I think that they go further with this, but just having a species that's like middling bureaucracy 
Yeah. Di- diplomats is a really interesting role for a species to occupy, and I think they do an interesting job. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. You don't have to go crazy with it. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I, I liked her a lot. I, and yeah, and I like her and I like, you know, Wei Yun. I think they've both been good. I, I think they, they serve their purpose really well in that they, they both are very like middlemen esque. Yeah. Um, and they handle those things in different ways, uh, to varying degrees of success. Um, it, it, although it seems like in in all the situations, it's always like someone saying, "Well, why didn't you just tell me that in the first place?" Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Which you know is fine. But yeah, I think I, I I like them. I I I like that they both have. There's there's lots of different ways you can can have that sort of character approach thing. So I like it. Yeah, it's a good. You know, the Star Trek runs into a problem when the species have too specific of a trait. Kind of like when yeah. when they're too locked into being one kind of thing. TOS did this all the time. TNG had a problem with it too. But you can see the Vorta existing as a role in the same way that the Cardassians are kind of malleable like that. And the, the Klingons are less so malleable. Um, but I think it's just, it's nice to give them a broad theme and then you can sort of branch out into different ways with it. Uh, Holly McLaughlin says the ship. I really love this one. Bashir being arrested is hilarious and so perfectly an Odo thing to do. We didn't even talk about that scene. The efforts that Kalana make to get to the dying founder seem sincere and heartfelt and her scenes make the Vorta seem that much more like people than they have at any point in uh, up to the series. Uh, any point now up to the series. What's that? I completely completely forgot about that scene until you mentioned it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, that's a pretty pointless scene. The loss of Munez lands hard. The reconciliation between O'Brien and Worf at the end is believable and touching. Neil Brennan says, The ship, I've read that the production team felt this one didn't quite live up to their hopes and that if, that seems fair to me. Hot, hot Vorta, though. Bonus points to Muniz for knowing so much about Ireland's topography. O'Brien boring his subordinates with geography banter sounds so, like something he'd do. Will Yates says, The ship, the episode seems strangely out of place in the season. There are a few too many plot holes for my liking. How could the, how could Wayun have made a report before he was shot? And how, what the hell killed the founder? Kyle Barrett says, The ship... Neither of those things matter. Yeah, that would be my my argument, I guess, as well. Um, The Ship, Kyle Barrett. I love the episode for the same reason I love the title, The Ship. On the surface, it's boring and generic, like the battle from TNG's first season. But here here it's as if the title is from Starfleet's point of view. The Ship is all they, and briefly Cisco, care about and focus on, while we are offered a glimpse deeper to see the human loss behind such a strategic gain. It's an ironic dismissal at the cost of a prize of the titular ship and continued look into the Federation's darker and more arrogant side. Essentially, it's the dulce et decorum est of Star Trek titles. Or maybe I'm just trying too hard to recapture my days as a pretentious lit student, overanalyzing everything to an annoying amount when I just like the episode because of all the shooting and the shouting. Either way, I love it. That's a good point. I never actually... um, That's a good point about the title being a reflection of what Starfleet values as important or what the the overseers of both sides view as important when it's really about something else uh, more personal for Cisco and everyone else. I love love that the... That you think that, and the writer, the writer of the episode, who just put that in as a placeholder and forgot to come up with something more <laughs> clever, also appreciates that you put that much thought into it. Half of the half of uh, half of the best decisions are probably accidents or something like that. Matthew Ross says the ship, a nice tension-filled episode. Once you get past the nonsense with Quark and Bashir, their contracts must have said that every character must be filmed. Hence that useless scene. 
Again, why is the Federation trying to go into Dominion territory, especially with runabouts? It was good to see other aliens and people in their brief careers. The finding of the Jem'Hadar ship, the subsequent bad aiming firefights, and the desperation felt with a wounded man with his eventual demise and attempt to outlast the Jem'Hadar was well played. The Vorta was playing a bit too conservative. After all, if they put the Jem'Hadar invisible into the ship, they could have taken out their heroes and gotten their founder back ASAP. Sisko's evident pain at the loss of his crew, O'Brien bristling at Worf's Klingon ways, even if learned by correspondence, and even Sisko's putting Dax straight were all well acted and what you would want and expect in the situation. Overall, a very good episode. The, uh, Christ- what you were saying about, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent. What you were saying about the happy accidents or, you know, mistakes or whatever just yep. reminded me of, uh, I was watching this, uh, the documentary on Netflix about Orson Welles' final unfinished movie. And they have a clip where he's talking about it and uh, they're asking what it's going to be like. And he says, well, all of the greatest moments in movies are happy accidents, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's never something that's on the page. It's never something you intend. It's always something that happens while you're making. It's a happy accident. That's always what the lasting things are made of. So this film, I'm trying to make an entire film of happy accidents. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> it means he doesn't like the script and he's just going to shoot from the hip. The yeah, it means, it means he's just making it up as he goes. <laughs> which after watching that documentary there's a good case that that was probably what he was doing orson wells says the ship a lot of happy accidents in this episode <laughs> uh, christian pouch says this uh, the ship this is the last comment five dollars says west questions why on earth starfleet is trying to set up a mining outpost in the delta quadrant in the first five minutes you know what christian i read this and i didn't do it so you owe me five bucks and he'd be right this seems like an awful provocation, no matter how deserted the area might seem. Fortunately, I think that's the episode's only big flaw. The setting is legit claustrophobic, and we feel the character frustrations of being trapped. It doesn't really make sense until it's revealed that the founder was aboard. Munez, while not being a revolutionary or inspired character, is still compelling as a nice, friendly, talented guy who died way too young. Worf sitting with O'Brien is a great way to end the episode. Side note, this is the first appearance of an updated Jem Hadar look that will continue to evolve. It's a strong I 4 out of 5, s- if not a 5, for me. I was going to say they look different. There was something they about do. them. That I, I didn't know if it was just the, the foot photography, but they looked like they were they were paler and they looked a little bit more reptilian or something. Um, yep. So I would yeah, say that I, their I heads realize. look more um, like flat top looking. Like they, yeah. they sort of they, they've raised their heads or something. I think that they I think they've redesigned them to be more maneuverable. And I don't know oh, if yeah. that's because okay. of what they have to do in this episode, but they look lighter on their feet. Previously, they look pretty heavy sets and were sort yeah, of like yeah. armored or something, lumbering. And this this one, they look more like guerrilla fighters. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. They do look lighter and their faces look somewhat different. I think one guy in this, the guy who brings up the food, I think has the old style makeup. He looks a little mm-hmm. bit different than the others, but that's about it. All right, that's it. Thank you very much for your comments, guys. The ship. Clay, what are you going to give the ship on our one to five scale? Um, uh, this is tough for me. Um, I'm going to say a very high four. Okay. Uh, I feel like there's something missing to, from making it an all timer and I'm not sure what it is. So you liked it more than you think it's good is my takeaway. No, I do think it's very good. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's something missing to it that is that is stopping it from from putting it over the top for me. Uh, Interesting. What are you going to give it? I give it a five. Yeah. I think it's I think it's really one of my favorites so far. I think it does. It has all the it has the emotional things that I always find is well done in the best episodes. I think that it has something to say 
about what it's talking about. I think that yeah. it does really good character work. I think everyone kind of plays things well. It has it has some problems where, like as you're saying, if we could nitpick the episode, I think there's some kind of minor problems with it. But I I really think it's a very a very strong episode for the show. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm I I'm gonna give it a five. I think okay. it's it's tough. I I don't know. I I'm not sure what it is that I'm looking for that it, that it's missing. Um, Do you think it's just, yeah, I, that's interesting because I, I was really expecting a five from you um, just based on what you were saying earlier in the episode, not because of what I like sort of think you'd think of the episode, but. Yeah, no, I, it's, I, I'm not like, I, I really wish I could tell you what it is. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say five, but I feel like it's probably a low five. Yeah, that's fair. Uh yeah, because I think you you would probably still at this point then if you uh, think that you'd probably still put duets as your number one episode, likely. I think Something so, like duet yeah. feels like more of a five out of five than this one does. To yes. You. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I think that this um this one maybe might be once we're all done with the series, looking back on it, you might think of this one as in a way that the wire, you now seem to remember the wire differently than when you were watching it the first time through. Um about how season two kind of drags. Right, exactly. <laughs> about how, how now you look back in the wire and you go, oh, I sort of understand the context now about that yeah, one more than yeah. I did at the time. Yeah. Uh, I think this don't, one will be the same. Don't get me wrong. I think it's great. Yeah, It's yeah, just fair. that I, I don't know what it is about it that is like just coming in under the wire of like all timer for me, but I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Was Cisco's line at the end about if only we could have trusted each other, this could have been avoided. Was that good or bad? Was that a good line or a bad line? Was it necessary? Um, I think it's a good line. I think it's I mean, a good I, line too. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's a little it's a little bit uh, a little on the nose. A little on the nose, but not so much that I find it distracting. Like, cause it's not like a long winded thing. I don't think, and not that I remember. No, it's, it's not. Yeah. yeah it's just well, a quick kind of frustration, you know, here's something I'll throw off you, I guess, in my opinion, I, I probably should have brought this up earlier. This feels like something that you could really talk about, but we'll just do it now for a couple seconds. Yeah. In my opinion, this is possibly Avery Brooks's best performance as Cisco. I would, I would probably agree with you. Yeah. Um, the visitor is the only other thing that I'd say was a really good performance from uh, end to, beginning to end. This is a little bit different, and I think he plays a more wi- a wider variety of emotions in this one. And he he never goes over the top. He never Avery Brooks's it up until a point where you're like, okay, yeah. this is just over the top. Everything feels right when he does it here. Yeah, sometimes I feel like his uh, over the topness is a result of him trying to figure out how to make what he's saying more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like how to really kind of add some life to whatever he has to do. But in this situation, in this episode, I feel like he's he's figured it out. Like he knows exactly what's supposed to be going on and what t- what level he's supposed to be at, and all of his motivations are there. And so I, I think he, um, you know, he 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 dials it up when he needs to, but he doesn't, you know, like you're saying, he doesn't go over the top and start making any weird noises or anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I would say this is probably. And and it's I don't know I wouldn't say it's his best perform well I think it's his best performance as Cisco but it's not in a episode that is necessarily Cisco it's not about him yeah uh, 
So I don't know if there's an episode where it's like Cisco is in 95% of the scenes and it's mostly about something that has to do with him that has a better performance. Right. But if you're just talking about all of these characters being played by their respective actors, I think this is the best one. Yeah. 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 It's certainly up there for me. I'd have to look at the list, but I felt while I was watching it, that this one felt right for him yeah. in a way that some of the, a lot of the other ones had previously felt like there was a mistake along the way. Yeah. All right. I'm going to give it a five. Clay gives it a little bit more of a reserved five, but uh, still five. I'll put it on the spreadsheet as a five. <laughs> and um, that's about, <laughs> that's about it. Uh, I'll put an asterisk on that thing. I think that's it for the ship. Thank you guys for listening. All the uh, Facebook, Twitter, Discord, check all those out. Patreon.com slash ThePenskyFowl if you want to support the show there. A couple dollars a month, you get extra stuff. It's the best way of supporting the show. Check out all the other shows on the, uh, the little channel network thing, and then you can rate and uh, all the shows on iTunes, on your phone. It's much appreciated. Clay, do you have anything you want to add? Um, Yeah, the Christmas episode of the Bat-Ass Batman the Animated Series podcast is coming out on, uh, when does this come out? This will uh, probably be the same day as this podcast, so oh, you can so it should be out you can check today. It. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it should be out today. Monday the something teenth. Monday uh, the well, you'll be there, I suppose. Everyone 17th? listening, Monday the seventeenth. But yeah. for our, our own information, Monday the seventeenth. Yeah, should be out on Monday or today rather. Um, and we'll, we're doing Mask of the Phantasm and doing some question and answer. It's a, it's definitely I call it a Christmas special because it's it's like two hours long. So it's like it's a double sized episode, and <laughs> it, it'll it should cover all of your uh, traveling for the holiday driving needs. Yes. Yep. And also, yep. Uh, Night Moves Two, just the book I'm currently doing with IDW, comes out on Wednesday. So if you happen to see that on the shelves, want to grab it, that'd be much obliged. Yeah. Well, that's about it. Guys, thank you very much for listening. We just talked about the ship for a good hour. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the content. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. All those things. It's not Christmas yet, but we'll just keep saying that until the holiday actually passes. That's about it. Guys, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.